My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. This is not a new problem. It's an old problem, and it's a very Canadian problem. And it's getting worse. Quickly. Have you got a family doctor? Me neither. Despite being on a wait list for around three years now, I'm one of the roughly six million Canadians that relies on walk-in clinics, urgent care clinics, and emergency rooms for primary care. Every time we see new data, more family doctors have left the practice and more Canadians are added to the millions without one. In a world of post-pandemic burnout, those retirements are happening more rapidly. And a reckoning is coming. We're all trying to retire early. That's what we talk about. How can we get out of practice? So given all of that, you would imagine that we would be doing everything possible to help replace those burnt-out retiring doctors with young ones who are eager to get their own practices going. Not so much. Family Physicians of Canada says patient needs are getting more complex, and two years of training isn't enough to cover everything family physicians will need to know in the community. Some students say that an extra year of residency would turn them away from family practice as a career. Provincial health ministers opposed the move at their conference this month, but they don't get to set these rules. So how bad is the family doctor shortage in Canada right now? How close are we to that reckoning? What do we actually know about what a lack of a family doctor does to your health? And why would we want to make it harder to bring people into the profession, even if it's done with the best of intentions? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. Kathy Risden is a practicing family doctor as well as the chair of family medicine at McMaster University. Hello, Kathy. Good morning, Jordan. What's it like practicing as a family doctor these days? It's extremely challenging to uh, to experience two things simultaneously. The joy of looking after patients and doing the work that um, I signed up to do has never left me. The incredible challenge at times agony of the practice environment and trying to do the work well has never been uh, harder. I want to ask you about the big picture in a moment uh, because you're well positioned to speak to that. But in your practice, how often do you have to turn down people who come to you looking for a doctor? Many times a day. I mean, I our staff receives probably up to 200 calls a week of people looking for family dogs. So we have a large practice. We we always try to accommodate people in dire need, and we're to the point now where we're having to turn those people away as well, which is really, really heartbreaking. Wow. In the big picture, I know that the story you just mentioned uh, is not unique to, to your practice. Can you quantify the family doctor shortage across Canada? How many people now don't have one? And, and kind of every time we hear this story, the number rises. You're absolutely right. The number is rising at an alarming rate. We know across Canada that for sure one in six Canadians don't have access to regular primary care. 
And uh, all provinces are struggling. Some provinces are approaching the one in three people without access. Ontario's looking at a similar number of about one in four people not having access to primary care in the next couple of years. We're at about one in five not having access right now. Staggering numbers. You mentioned it's getting worse at an alarming rate. Like, what kind of rate? How quickly is that moving? And and what's contributing to uh, the speeding up of that? It's a really complex situation and often described as the perfect storm of a lot of things converging all at once, which I think gives us these patterns where the change happens really, really quickly. Some of the um, essential factors, I think, are that the Population of Canada has been aging, as has our workforce. That's mm. one of those things that sneaks up on you. There's really not been significant investment in primary care in most provinces for at least 15 to 20 years. So there was this bedrock that I think got taken for granted, and we didn't have the kind of uh, ability to do a coordinated plan and, and have the data that helped us know how to preserve the system into the future Then the pandemic hit us and really interrupted all of the structures around around healthcare, which primary care is sort of as the bedrock is really affected by. And as all those things swirl together, people choosing a career in medicine are staying away from a family medicine career because it seems too undoable right now. And so we're we're not able to replace uh, the ones that we're losing to to change in practice and retirement. So many, many factors converging right now. I think it's often talked about in terms of numbers because the numbers are are large and scary. But what do we actually know about the health impact of not having a primary care physician? Like, what does the research say about people that do versus people who don't? Yeah, there's a really good research on this, which I think is is not well understood by all parts of the healthcare system. In fact, the only investment that we know lengthens and improves the the lifespan of a population is an investment in family medicine and primary care. So literally, if you've had a family doc for 15 years or more, we've just added sort of 25% bonus to your lifespan and the quality of your life throughout Mm -hmm. because of the accumulated benefits of a long-term relationship with a comprehensive care team that can address your health needs year by year, encounter by encounter. So it's it's a really significant benefit. I often joke that if there was a pill we could take once a day that would give us that kind of benefit, everyone on earth would want it. Hmm. But um, that uh, bedrock of, of primary care, I don't think is as well understood as having such a sustained health benefit to individuals. And I can sort of unpack why that's the case, but it's a matter of life and death, quite literally, for for many people. Well, let's go back to unpacking why that's the case and maybe back to your personal practice. You know, we can say like the benefits of a long-term relationship with a practitioner over years and years of encounters. What does that mean in terms of uh, real-world examples? What do family doctors do for somebody that the rest of the healthcare system can't? Yeah, it's a great question. So healthcare is a team sport. It's not always planned that way, but it's definitely a team sport. So my role in the healthcare system is to be the, the first contact of care for my patients. It's to be the one that knows their health history over time and can integrate the learnings of their health history, the story of their health over time. I get to know the story of their life over time to see how 
different health conditions are impacting their function and the ways they want to live their life. So I, I have the chance to optimize that. I'm also a coordinator of the rest of the healthcare team uh, in the community and even um, the stories of people's health that occur in hospitals. I receive that and can factor that story into their care. So when I hear a symptom from a patient, I have so much uh, context to bring to a, an understanding of that symptom or the impact or the worry of it. And I can manage that often within my own office or make the best next decision about a help, how to help that person because I have such a rich context with them. When they go to an emergency room staffed by incredible physicians, those physicians are working blind. They do not have the story or the context or the history. They don't know which medications worked or didn't. So they're having a one-off experience with a patient, which tends to cost more money because they do more investigations and tends to focus only on the presenting problem because that's what they're trained to do. If that same person came to me, it would be a very different uh, interaction with benefits to the system and to the patient. A good primary care system offers this wide open door that manages so much of a person's health before they need to go into other sectors of the system. And I think that's why it's, it's so effective and also saves the system a lot of money. Since you just mentioned it, I will, I will ask you how that works. You wrote a piece in The Conversation about how having a family doctor not only saves lives, but saves the healthcare system money. Mm -hmm. How do you quantify that? Where does that show up on the bottom line? Well, that is a great question, Jordan, and one that I wish I could answer more effectively. And this points to, I think, another underinvestment in primary care over time. So, you know, the acute care sector is exquisitely effective at doing what it needs to do. It's also struggling right. and I'm um, facing a lot of challenges. So I have a lot of, uh, I feel a lot of solidarity with my companions in the acute care sector. They also have an incredible data infrastructure. They have folks who make sense of every single transaction that occurs within that sector and are continuously able to look for improvements, look for better ways of doing things, understand how action X will result in the costs down the road in, in outcome Y. None of that infrastructure exists in primary care. It's one of the reasons why this problem has come upon us. We've been blind to the importance of primary care and the way primary care resources impact and support the rest of the system. We simply do not have an infrastructure or a support network or a linked system of, of sort of data analysis to make sense of the primary care sector. It's a huge blind spot for Canadians and for the, the health of our population. And it's one of the sort of non-sexy things we're, we're advocating for with the investment into primary care that the federal government's been promising. We really need that kind of foundation to make sense of the work we're doing. How do we tackle a problem like this? You know, I, I mentioned in the introduction that it's it's not only a massive problem, but it seems like such an intractable one and seems like one that has been around for years. Like, where do we start, I guess, is my question. Well, I think we start by just understanding that our whole health system benefits from an investment in primary care. Primary care is not a cost center that you need to invest the very minimal amount to get buy-in because you pay down the road if, if you think of primary care that way. So it's a bedrock of the system. It sees the most patients of every other part of the system. And when it's functioning well, the rest of the system benefits. 
So I think there's um, a literacy that's developing, as you say, as we get close to this tipping point, the, the understanding is that this investment's crucial. Hmm. And so if we know that, that uh, this is the bedrock of the healthcare system, how then do all partners in the healthcare system take collective action to ensure the health of this bedrock? And this is where we see primary care as interacting with so many other parts of siloed systems. If the system worked exquisitely well for primary care, it would work for everybody. It would be a joy for hospitals, home and community care. It would be a joy for patients. So I think an outcome measure that uh, we need to explore as a system is how would we make the referral processes, the data sharing, the access to specialists, the planning of healthcare services, the integration with the community sector, how do we center the patient, which means really the primary care relationship into that planning and take it from there, knowing that that's going to make the life of my cardiology specialists work better in the end as well. It really is about the system. It's not about sort of pitting one part of the system against another. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. That's an interesting look at the system and the structure and how it could be improved to help fix the problem. I want to ask you about warm bodies because this is the big one, right? And then we talked to uh, Dr. Alika Lafontaine last year about this when we did a healthcare week. He was at the time president of the CMA and he said, you know, a, a huge part of it is not only do fewer young people want to go into family practice, those that do don't want to go and practice in smaller areas or rural areas where they might be the only doctor. Absolutely, yeah. How do we encourage more medical students to choose this pathway? It is the warm bodies and the, the degree of suffering. You know, we've been talking about the impact on patients and not having a family doc, which is really significant, and the impact of practicing in today's system on on family doctors and other members of the primary care team is is also heartbreaking. Probably the the first most urgent immediate need is to really rush in with some administrative first aid. And by that, I mean a recognition of how much work falls on the shoulder of family doctors right now that doesn't have to do with the, the direct care of patients. So at least 20 hours a week, and you think of a full-time job as, you know, 40 hours, and most docs work more hours than that. But uh, imagine spending almost half of your time in paperwork, in dealing with patients who are upset that they haven't received their specialist appointment, in being asked to fill out one of 200 different referral forms to access care for my patients because the system hasn't created a single um, referral form. Right. In combing through 200 electronic messages from three different healthcare systems you know, with five clicks per document, trying to sort out a nugget of information that's going to help uh, help me when I see my patient in the in the next room. It's just uh, it's crushing. It's not a death of a thousand cuts. It's a it's a death of hundreds of thousands of cuts a week, which 
family docs are doing because they care about their patients, but they're increasingly saying, I can't do this anymore. I actually am not with my patients. I am doing administrative, sort of bureaucratically non-integrated work, and it's destroying me. I can't do it anymore. So that is a, that's a crisis right there. And amid this crisis, one of the reasons we wanted to revisit this topic is because at the moment, there are changes being made to family doctor requirements from the College of Family Physicians that would see them require three years of residency instead of two. And, and listen, you can tell me how this works. It seems kind of nuts to me that we are having a conversation here about a crisis in warm bodies and needing to encourage people to enter this profession. And at the same time, the college governing it says, actually, we're going to make it harder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a pretty tricky message right now. I, I absolutely agree with you. Tell me maybe why they're doing it or why they would do it before we get into whether or not they should. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it actually boils down to a really uh, important issue of complexity. So uh, another factor we haven't even talked about yet is not only is this really thick administrative wall something that family docs are facing every day, part of the reason that's gotten thicker is the patients themselves have become more complex. When I came into practice, there were probably, you know, 20 drugs that I prescribed 90% of the time. If you look at the guidelines now for care of people with different types of diseases, there's probably 300 drugs that are recommended. And that's just an example of some uh, prescribing knowledge that I need to have as a family doc. Right. The same is true for so many things. So, the complexity of our patients has really increased and managing folks who walk in the door with five or six or seven chronic illnesses, all of which require a specific form of treatment. You know, as a family doc, I'm actually really, really good at matching the person to the very best outcomes within that complex web, but it takes time to do that. And what we know is that um, as patients get more complex, as the, the demands on a family doc's expertise have expanded, the amount of time we're offering our learners in training has significantly reduced. So at the other end of the uh, experience for family medicine residents, they are seeing up to 30% fewer patients in clinic settings than they did 10 years ago. And that's because Canadians expect their doctors to be well-rested when they train, to, you know, have protected time for their health, to learn about caring for populations of all kinds, to learn about how to provide culturally competent and sensitive care. So we've added more expectations onto the, the shoulders of our trainees, and we've reduced the amount of time they get to see patients. So when, when we look at our curriculum in Canada, which produces amazing family docs in the shortest training period in the world... I think there was some understandable concern that the the amount of time needed to really reach that full competency, there was a mismatch, right? And we needed to offer some more opportunities to train a bit more and develop a deeper confidence in the wide range of services family medicine provides populations. I totally understand that reasoning. Like, that makes a lot of sense. But now I will push and ask, at this point, when the shortage is this high and the demand is this great, are we making perfect the enemy of the good by doing yeah. that? Yeah, no, totally reasonable question. So uh, two things I think it's really important to remember. One is the practice environment right now is far and away the most urgent solution that we have to see progress on immediately because if no one wants to be a family doc, 
It doesn't matter if they're in for two or three years. And right now, we know that people don't want to choose the profession, a comprehensive family medicine, because the practice environment is so challenging. So that, always want to keep our eye on on the ball for that problem. Uh, On the other side, the training side, I think it's really important to note that there are many, many ways of um, including that third year of training to solve some of the current issues in Canada. For instance, we know that there are many populations, and the more vulnerable you are, the poorer your access to team-based care in Canada. So the folks who need it the most aren't getting it. Right. An extra year of training actually gives us the possibility of helping uh, residents learn how to care for those folks. Residents are a really, really important part of the health workforce. So in some ways, I think there's an argument to me, we won't be losing docs by a three-year curriculum. We're going to be helping address population health needs while giving learners an amazing training experience simultaneously. So there's a real way this is actually a solution. It it depends on how the third year is crafted and how communities understand these third-year trainees as potential future docs for their communities, right? We could do some really exciting things to place third-year learners who are senior and seasoned into communities that adopt them once they're finished their residency. So I think there's some really creative possibilities with this that we're just starting to be able to explore and and explain to people. Certainly understand the concern, especially if anyone thinks it threatens access to, to this important resource of a family doc. And maybe I'll just make one other point is because the practice environment is so challenging right now, a huge number of the people that we graduate from our two-year curriculum aren't going into comprehensive family medicine, which is what we need the most. They're going into more focused practice. They're working in hospitals. Hmm. You know, they're doing important work, but they're not carrying a roster of patients. It may be we get more comprehensive family medicine by continuing to support trainees in a third year in settings which offer a chance for them to practice comprehensive medicine. We actually may come out ahead the way things look right now but that is something that we have to continue to understand. And I guess it hasn't been determined yet exactly what that third year will look like. Exactly, yeah. The last thing I want to ask is about how seriously governments are taking the uh, litany of uh, possibilities for reforming the system, making it more streamlined, encouraging more people, etc. And I ask this because I know there was uh, a big health minister's meeting recently, and this was a topic discussed. Do we know of anything concrete in the works? Well, I think there's a lot of anticipation and waiting to see how the the money that the federal government promised into primary care is going to be deployed province by mm. province. Do they have a deadline for that or have they have they delivered it yet? My understanding is a few provinces have signed off on what the um, accountability agreement is for that funding, but the, the, the details haven't been announced anywhere yet. And I actually don't know in my own province, I'm not clear on where that process is. We all know that healthcare is delivered provincially, and when federal funding comes into play, there's always a bit of a, a struggle there to see uh, the degree to which the province is going to be accountable to federal dollars. So that is uh, something we're all awaiting with great anticipation. Last thing then, we've talked about a reckoning. People have called it a tipping point. Will we notice when we hit that tipping point? Is it really a tipping point or is it just a continued ramped up decline? And what happens? Like, where is the point at which the system 
maybe collapses is the wrong word, but can no longer sustain the health of Canadians? What an interesting question. What I fear and what breaks my heart a bit is that um, I think those who suffer the most right now are the ones with, with the least voice to explain what their experience is like. And we know that a lot of suffering can be distributed across many individuals before it becomes uh, visible to policymakers and to system planners. I think we're in a bit of that situation right now where the, where the sense of real urgency is just now collecting so that action's going to be taken more quickly. You know, back to it's, it's a really boring point to talk about data, but I would love for us to have a system that allowed us to know whether our healthcare was successful based on our ability to care for those who are most vulnerable. Because again, systems that do that well are great for everybody. And we don't have a way of naming or measuring if we're doing that presently. So the tipping point question is a really challenging one because we're blind right now to knowing what's really happening for folks. Apart from these really important chances to tell some stories and to have people think differently about their healthcare and maybe poke their politicians a bit to say, listen, a publicly funded service and, and family medicine is a human right. It's a right of all Canadians, and we need to make sure we're doing the best we can for all Canadians around health. Thank you so much, Kathy, for uh, taking some time for us. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Dr. Kathy Risden, Chair of Family Medicine at McMaster University, and still a practicing family physician because we need every last one. That was The Big Story. For more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You will find, last year, that interview I mentioned with Dr. Alika Lafontaine, then of the CMA. You can also talk to us anytime you want. You can do it on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can do it via email, hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can call us. You can leave a message, 416-935-5935. A big reminder, our new show, in This Economy launches this Thursday. You can find it everywhere you get your podcasts. We will drop the first couple of episodes into this feed. But if you go and subscribe to its feed, you will get a little bonus that we created just for the early adopters. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Thanks for listening to this show and hopefully to In This Economy. And we'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.